Well, unlike some of you, I'm, I'm not a, a huge uh, Facebooker person, but I do have a Facebook account. And for those of you who have resisted the temptation to sign up for one, I just encourage you, stand strong. Um, <laughs> because it'll create mayhem in your life. You'll discover friends you never knew you had and some you wish you never wish you had. And, and uh, they end up becoming your friend. But I, I kind of did something um, this last week that probably is going to make some of you who are my friends unfriend me because you're going to consider me a Facebook stalker. Um, that as I went snipping around... Um, on your Facebook post, because for those who don't know, this last 30 days of November was the 30 days of thankfulness in which you're supposed to post what you're thankful for. So I snooped around and thought, what are people at Parkway, my friends on Facebook, thankful for? And uh, here are some that made the the short list, and um, no identities will be revealed, so you don't have to unfriend me, but here's a short list. Uh, Jobs, family, air conditioning. Stubborn determination, babies, dinner in a movie, friends, blankets, jammies, fires in a fireplace. Now that one sings my song. Warm clothes, cake, kisses, cousins, school, school. Now that had to be a parent that wrote that, not a kid. Freedom, holidays, gluten-free food, weight watchers. Stuffed turkey, deep-fried turkey, baked turkey, turkey soup, turkey sandwiches, turkey leftovers. Kind of reminds you of Forrest Gump, doesn't it? It's like shrimp creole, shrimp kebab, shrimp stew, and so forth. Bubba Gump turkey. Grandmothers, mentors, minivans. Here's one. For 30 days of thankfulness, almost being over. And the best of all, I'm thankful for people who seldom post on Facebook. Oh, come on, that was funny. People who are thankful for people who don't post on, on Facebook. And, and my guess is that um, this last week on Thursday, as you were sitting around your Thanksgiving feast, um, for some of you it's a gluten-free Thanksgiving feast, um, you did take an inventory of the undeserved blessings that God has poured out on you. Um, and they are undeserved. Um, the minute we think they're deserved is the minute we begin being demanding upon God and we find ourselves bitter when it doesn't turn out like life we hope it will. But I hope you did um, do an inventory and, and give thanks for the blessings of, of God in your life and, and the created things. And um, the interesting thing about that list is that everything on that list, um, at some point in this life, we can and will lose. Which is why the holiday season, Thanksgiving and these coming Christmas holidays, are, are, are more holidays or days of sadness than they are necessarily of gratitude because um, when the when the you know, flowers of our lives are, are, are in bloom and the children are growing and doing well and the marriage is good and, and death seems a, like, a, like a distant reality. It's not up close and personal. Then, well, it's easy to feel a common gratitude for the goodness of food and a job and career and so forth. But when those flowers of our lives, loved ones and so forth, begin to wilt or they're wilted or they're gone then what people are left with is this kind of this hollow, bittersweet of a memory of what once was and is no longer, which is why many, perhaps even in this room, feel a sense of, well, I'm I'm thankful, but I'm also really sad because uh, my husband isn't here um, this Thanksgiving, which means in order to be truly overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude, that we have to dig deeper than what we might call the blessings of the old creation, Blessings which we can't hold on to. 
and, and down into the, the blessings of redemption and the new creation, which are eternal and can't be taken away, and let those things fill up our hearts and, and kind of work themselves out so that even in the midst of loss or absence or the hollow house where someone used to be and they are, no longer are can still be sung. And we can still experience the joy of, of gratitude. And one of the places that I find um, really encouraging, a place where we find a lavish gratitude of love come forth out of somebody, is Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through the end of the chapter. Some of you know the story. Perhaps others of you aren't that acquainted with the story. But this has been um, a story that has just taken um, root in my heart over the years. And, and really, for most of us in here, it's probably a, a vivid reminder. But 99% of what we need as Christians, who especially have been in church for a while, is to be reminded of essential things, um, not to be um, distracted by novel things. And so I just wanted to draw us in the next few minutes back to the center of, of, of where the gratitude of love comes from. Most of the story I'm going to summarize, and I'll read what I think are some of the most important points. Um, the story opens at a, at a feast, another feast. We just got done with Thanksgiving feast on Thursday, and, and this story surrounds another feast. Uh, a religious leader in Jesus' day, a Pharisee by the name of Simon, he invites Jesus to his house for a meal, that is for a feast. And Jesus um, accepts the invitation, and he... Um, he goes to his house and he sits down at the table to eat at this feast invited by this uh, religious leader. Just a little reminder that Jesus didn't spend all of his time with the poor. He spent it with all kinds of people. But while he was there in the middle of this, this meal or this feast, um, surrounded by very conservative Jewish religious people, something really awkward happens. And it's a, a, a woman walks into the room uninvited, who is a known sinner. That is, she has a wide reputation as probably being a prostitute or a hooker or what the Old Testament would call a whore. And she comes in, and um, if it wasn't bold enough just to show up uninvited, um, she shows up uninvited to a group of people who would have, without question, looked at her with condemning eyes and with condemning thoughts. Thoughts like, what is this whore doing here? And she came knowing that that would be the disposition of the hearts of the religious community um, in this little house feast that she was coming into. To make it more awkward, she is, she is weeping uncontrollably, and her tears are streaming down her face while she's standing, as the text tells us that she was standing, and her tears are falling on the, the dirty feet of Jesus. She begins to, um, so when she gets down on her hands and knees and she begins to, to wipe his dirty feet because they had not been washed. She, she wipes the tears uh, off of his feet with her hair along with the dirt and she kisses his feet repeatedly. And then she takes some perfume, which is very expensive, and she begins to anoint his dirty feet. Now you put yourself in the position of anyone around that table, it would have been extremely awkward. Um, it, there would have been a lot of tension in the air of what is this woman do, doing here? I mean, you can imagine the scene. Here is Jesus having his feet kissed and um, dried with the hair of a sobbing hooker. Awkward. 
And if Jesus were any ordinary man who was concerned about public opinion, he would have been weirded out too. Like, this is kind of awkward. And put yourself in Jesus' place. You have somebody who's a prostitute gushing over your feet. Would have been awkward. But Jesus wasn't a person in this moment who was concerned about public opinion. At this moment, Jesus is looking into the heart of this woman and observing why. She is showing such lavish affection to his dirty feet or to Jesus through his dirty feet. Meanwhile, the host, the religious pastor or Pharisee, he looks at what's taking place, this awkward situation, and he begins to judge Jesus. This is what the text says about his perspective, beginning in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. That says she has a wide reputation. She showed up. Everybody knows this is the lady of the night. Um, this is somebody who would be repulsed in religious communities. And he thinks to himself, well, if Jesus really was a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was, and he wouldn't want anything to do with her as he's judging Jesus to be ignorant or naive or probably fake, a fraud. He's not really a prophet. Otherwise, he wouldn't spend any time allowing this woman to do this very uncomfortable thing, breaking all rules of etiquette um, and so forth. But then Jesus, next in the story, he turns the penetrating gaze of, of, of his eyes from this woman who he's watching and I think marveling over and he looks into the soul of Simon. And what he says, beginning in verse 40, shows us not only does he see right into her soul and why she's doing what she's doing, but it also shows that he looks penetratingly right into Simon's soul, and he can see the self-righteousness there. And this is what he says. He responds to this man who has who silently judged him to be a fake or a fraud. Verse 40, it says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, so say it, or say it, teacher. That's a rather cold and generic way of responding, say it, teacher. It's not warm. It's not filled with a sense of, of personal intimacy or knowledge. It's just you can sense there's a distance between this Pharisee and Jesus. So then Jesus goes on, and he gives an example. Puts him on the, on the, on the, on the spot. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, these are massive sums of money perhaps a, a year and a half's worth of wages uh, today. Um, and another who owed 50, which is just short of a, um, like a little over a month and a half's wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Imagine, this is actually an, almost a miracle in and of itself. He's imagining a banker, a bank, uh, remitting the debt of, of two men, one very sizable, the other much smaller, then he asked the question, now which of them will love him more? That is the banker, the money lender. Which one? You have two debtors, one who owes a lot and one who owes comparably much less. Both men are forgiven their debts, wiped clean. Your, your second on your house, your HELOC loan is done. You know, all that money is, is remitted. It is, it is forgiven. No longer do you have to pay it back. He asked the question, which one then is going to love the money changer more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, now he's looking at the woman who's still kissing and gushing over his feet in tears and uh, uncontrollably sobbing. And he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. That's how I know his feet were dirty. A custom of kindness at the time would have allowed a person to wash their feet. But Simon provided none of that for Jesus. But he goes on and says, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which is also a customary greeting of affection, is to greet one another with a holy kiss, and, and there was none. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which is also a customary kindness for skin that's been baked and windblown in the desert heat. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, He's acknowledging that this woman has a rap sheet and she has done evil things in her lives, in her life. And you can just, with a little imagination, imagine some of the carnage that she's left behind as a result of her, her trade. Perhaps um, broken families. Perhaps illegitimate children. Divorces. Um, the list could go on. That is, she's done evil things. Her sins are many. The debt is huge. Jesus says it correctly. He gives a fair evaluation. But he says, therefore, I tell you, um, her sins, which are many, the great debt, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, the logic of Jesus' teaching is fairly straightforward here. And that is the person who has a conscious awareness of the normity of their debt. That, That is, they really know, I am bankrupt irretrievably so, and has somebody come and pay that debt personally, all of it, is going to respond with a kind of grateful love that we find this woman responding with. But it's important to recognize in this story, it's not her display of love that causes the forgiveness it's not her weeping and, 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 and wiping his feet and kissing his feet and, and anointing his feet with really expensive uh, perfume that causes her forgiveness. That's to get it backwards. Because he tells us the one who is forgiven little will love little in response. So the idea is the one who knows in their heart that they have been forgiven, the debt has been remitted, and it's been an enormous one. The ones who have experienced that forgiveness then are kind of called forth to uh, display this gratitude-filled, lavish, sacrificial love in return for the one who canceled the debt. That's the logic of of, of of, of the story. Which means at some point, and I think that the story demands this, at some point prior to this feast, she met Jesus. She either met him personally or she heard him speaking to the crowds. And she heard the message of divine forgiveness and atonement. She heard the message of God's forgiving love. And she heard his, his parables that talked about the kingdom coming to those that didn't deserve it. And, and perhaps for the first time in her guilt-saturated life, um, in her self-hatred, in her darkness, in her feeling of absolute hopelessness, a light broke through and she thought or at least it a, a little bit believed that perhaps there is hope for me. Maybe there can be forgiveness. Maybe God does in fact love me. Maybe he can pay my debt, which is huge. 
As she had to have at some point experienced Jesus either by way of message or personally prior to this event, which explains why she comes and sobs and shows such displays of, of, of lavish affection, of gratitude, and of love because she knows that she's been forgiven. She's tasted of the love of God that remits all sin. That's, that's part of the, 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 the depth of her her display of gratitude is that she knew her debt to be great. But then she came to believe that that great debt was forgiven by divine mercy. And it produced these actions, these displays, these affections of great gratitude and love towards Jesus. And then when he says, your sins are forgiven... That's a confirmation of what she already had been experiencing, that there is is hope for me. But it's important to recognize that she, at this point, doesn't really understand just how costly that debt is going to be. When Jesus says the words, your sins are forgiven, it's not those words, your sins are forgiven, that pay the debt. They're not like a a magic wand that somehow magically says, poof, your debt disappears. That's not how it works. That's not how it works on a common level between people. Sin, which creates debt, and we know this by experience, if we take the time to reflect that when somebody hurts you, you feel like they owe you something. That's debt language. But it creates a debt. And the one who forgives eats eats the, 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 the debt himself. The money lender, in, in the, the little, little example he gave, the money lender who gives two men money and they don't repay it and he cancels it out, well, he ate the debt. So in order for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, that debt has to be applied somewhere else. That is, when he says to her, your sins are forgiven, the debt was then added to his account. Or if we were to use financial terminology, which Jesus seems to use finances here, he would have said that this lady is irretrievably in the red. She has no way, no hope of ever recovering and getting her way out of this bankrupt debt, ever. And when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's basically transferring the red from her ledger into his and guaranteeing that he is going to then pay for it. Now, I realize this is speculation on my part, um, But I like to believe that this woman, based upon the um, lavish display of devotion to Jesus in response to him, that she was there on Good Friday, amongst the many other women who stood by Jesus as he died on the cross, and witnessed firsthand the horror of how much her debt cost, as she saw the love of God bleed out in real human flesh to bear the weight of, of, of our debt, her debt. And right there, to see that that's what my debt cost. And at the same time, to recognize that where my debt was irretrievably unpayable, God reached down and he paid it for me because he's that gracious and his grace overcame my sin and my debt. That is, he, he, he paid it. To me, this, the story shows us the way to what we might call a deep sense of heartfelt, true, actual gratitude of love. It's not just words spoken, or it's not just lines of a song that you sing without any heart whatsoever. To reacquaint ourselves with the fact that 
It's only as we're consciously aware of the debt that we had before Jesus and apart from Jesus, before grace and apart from grace, that we're able to experience day by day the gratitude of love that's willing to pour out our lives for him. See, that there's, there's two things that lead her to this kind of response, two things that, that should be true of us as well. It's kind of the key to a lavish gratitude of love for Jesus. It's one for us to continue to remember and never to forget that we were all debtors. And apart from Christ, we still would be debtors. To never forget, you say, wait, I'm not supposed to forget my debt? God forgets my debt. Well, no, that's a way of saying that he has forgiven you your debt. God doesn't forget. And if we forget, then our sense of gratitude and love for the measurable nature of his grace dries up, and we find ourselves singing songs we don't mean because it's not from here anymore. And Paul reminded the Christians of Ephesus where they used to be, remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were by nature objects of wrath. Don't ever forget that. That you Gentiles out there, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and separated strangers to the covenants, without hope and without God in the world, cut off from life. Don't ever forget that. Because the moment you forget it, the moment we become forgetful in our faith is the moment that the heart dries up. But on the flip side of that, it's, it's not just to remember that before and apart from Jesus, we were debtors. But also to, at the same time, really believe that someone actually paid it all off. Like the, the last statement of the story, after he talks about and says, your sins are forgiven, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. She believed it's one thing to be acquainted with, with our, 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 our debt. It's another thing to be acquainted with our debt, wallow in it, and fail to believe in the satisfactory nature of God's grace that atones for it all. And to actually believe the words, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is gone now and forevermore, to believe the words that God has supplied what is necessary. He is the money lender, and he's the one who paid it in full and ate the cost personally for us. Now, and you might say, and that I believe is real key to rediscovering that, that the friend, fresh wind of a, of, a, of a grateful love to God that's, that does, doesn't obey out of obligation, but out of a grateful love for all that he's done for us and all he continues to do for us because he died on the cross. You might say, you know what, though, Dan? I'm, I'm not like the woman. I don't have a rap sheet. I can't look back and say, hey, I was an adulterer. I lied and cheated on my spouse. Um, I, have, uh, I have disowned my children. I have stolen. I've done a stint in prison. So I don't have many sins like she does. So how do I dig deep and find out that, that I actually have a lot to forgive too? And that's where I think you can come to this story with a, another lens. Simon obviously believes, the Pharisee believes that his sins are little too. 
What he fails to believe is that the sin of self-righteousness is far more dangerous and perhaps eternally damning than the prostitutes. You get that part? His sins are great too. He just can't see it. If he had the eyes to see how horrifying his judgmental spirit was, both to the Lord and to other people, and how it destroys relationships and exalts the self and, 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 and belittles other people, it's fundamentally unloving, he'd recognize that, me too, I actually do have a rap sheet. It's just not exposed like hers. And that's where a lot of, I think, people perhaps who have grown up in church are. They fail to have this great deep sense of gratitude, a grateful love for God for all he has done because they think their debts are small. Because you didn't go to jail. Let me just say it's possible to be in church and be a more wretched person to be a person out on the streets selling themselves. Just recognize, eyes wide open, you know what? Everyone in this room, everyone. There's not a single person, including the one who's standing right here speaking to you that is not enormously indebted to God. And yet Jesus came and he actually did pay the debt. And, and we come to the scriptures and we, we listen to messages to be reminded of all that he has done to pay the debt so that we could be free. And I'll tell you, in that moment when that woman experienced that, that, that um, the words, your sins are forgiven, it must have been just like a beams of a thousand light, like penetrating your hopeless lost soul. And, and, and in that moment, she felt free. And she would never be the same. That's what grace does when we really encounter it. And when we continue to encounter it day after day, week after week, month after month, is it produces that grateful love that produces actions. So that she would no longer be a prostitute. But on the basis of what Jesus did for her in paying her debt and saying your sins are forgiven she would now be a part of his family forever, part of his kingdom forever. Not a harlot that's outcast, but a, a, a daughter, uh, someone beloved by God and part of his eternal kingdom, and somebody that someday you and I are going to meet, all because of grace. So let's just uh, like, uh, have a moment of pause for clarity here, just for you and for me. Do you, do you remember especially if you didn't grow up in the church sitting in a pew, and perhaps it's more important to think about it if you have. Do you remember what it was like pre-Jesus, pre-grace, when your decisions and your choices were largely revolving around you and your selfishness and how well you looked? Jealousy, perhaps, or hatred? Do you remember what it was like to discover you were self-righteous, that you lived a better life than other people and you looked down on them, and that that was deeply sinful? And what it was like when you first heard the words and felt the presence of God's grace in Christ say to you, you know, I love you, and I paid the debt, and if you trust me like she does, then your sins are forgiven. Do you remember that? And do you know that he, and actually know that he actually hung there to pay the debt completely so that your red would be taken into his ledger and you're free? You know, I think that that's one of the reasons why the Lord in his mercy allows us to continue to struggle with our sin. He doesn't allow us to continue to struggle in our sin that we might become more sinful. 
but he allows us as believers to continue to struggle in our sins so that we might become keenly aware of just how screwed up we really are. And it takes a lifetime to learn that. Note, take this from a boy who grew up in the church as God peels back the layers and layers and layers. He doesn't do it for me and us to wallow. He does it for us to worship his grace. And to know and to come to that place like her, I can't believe that you would go so far and pay so much for me. And at that point, he's like, now you get the point. Because I do want you to be overwhelmed by the sense of my sacrifice and my grace for you. And the only way that you can really get there is for you to understand at deeper levels through life just how deeply sin has penetrated your being. And as I carefully and lovingly begin to transform it. So this morning is that, you know, we gather Thanksgiving. Um, we just got done with the craziness of Black Friday. There's got to be moral connotations to that word, by the way. And as we face the frenzy of Christmas, and it is frenzied, and I don't know how to change it. There's cards to write, there's people to see, parties to go to, gifts to whatever. To be able to reach down beneath the blessings of creation, which are wonderful. Like having dogs returned, or, or having a wife go out to dinner in a movie with you to what matters the most, and that is recognizing that we were all deep in debt. And God, in his amazing love in Christ, he, he paid it in full, and never to forget that that's where the gratitude of love that produces these lavish actions come from. And that's where we need to stay during these holidays, especially for those who have the bittersweet memory of what used to be that we have him, and that, in the end, is all that matters. Will you um, take a moment to just maybe evaluate, have I forgotten my, my indebtedness, and do I really trust, on the other hand, that God's divine provision has paid it all? That we were once blind, but then he provided sight, that we were once lost, but now we're found that we were once wretches, but now in Christ we have been transferred into sons and daughters to remember our, our chains that we once were bound by and the prisons that we once lived in and to recognize that Jesus broke through and gave us hope and gave us light. And just pray, Lord, please, you ask him yourself, Lord, please just reawaken my sense of grateful love for you. Forgive me for forgetting, failing to remember, failing to be deeply, deeply moved by my sense of grateful love for all you have done for us.